Welcome to Febrile, a cultured podcast about all things infectious disease. We use console questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I'm Sarah, your host and a MedPeds ID fellow. We are back with our ongoing febrile series entitled High School, spelled H-A-I, which are a bundle of episodes about healthcare-associated infections. You can check out episodes 60 and 61 on Clabsy and Cotty. And in episode 60, 61, and today's number 62, we are joined by doctors Jeremy Steinbrook and Dr. Nick Gilpin. Both join us from Beaumont Royal Oak, which is in Michigan, where Jeremy is an ID fellow, and Nick is an ID faculty physician and medical director of infection prevention and epidemiology. All right, welcome back, everyone. I am here with Jeremy and Nick for our final round, and I am excited that we're going to talk a little bit about surgical site infections. So Jeremy, take it away. Thank you for having us again. Uh, so the console question is a 65-year-old female. Status post three days of an X-lab for colorectal fistula repair. Has fevers and chills. They got a new CT abdomen showing abscesses. Their question is about what antibiotic should they use? So for this type of console, when you get like this type of question, what's some key information you like to know? Right. So developing a surgical site infection in the case that you described, you know, we're talking about, you know, post-op day three after uh, a colorectal fistula repair, three days post-op is pretty fast, right? Uh, It can happen, you know, particularly if there were some, you know, sort of catastrophe, uh, like an anastomotic leak or a perforation, you know, certainly those things can happen in the immediate post-operative window. But generally speaking, surgical site infections take time, right? If we were, if we think back to our doing our during our surgical rotation in medical school, and they talked about the five W's, right? The 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 W that stands for wound was typically the one that comes what about seven or so days after surgery. That's when we start to think about surgical site infections. Um, a good place to start is always you know with reviewing the operative findings to try to get a sense of what happened to this patient in the OR. So questions like, was this a clean surgery? Was it a dirty surgery? Was there a perforation or did they find an infection at the time of the initial surgery? Um, This would increase the likelihood of having a secondary infection. So this patient, looking back at the OR report, the surgeon uh, put in there that it was a clean surgery, no signs of infection, no inflammatory febrile material, no signs of fecal matter. But in their kind of little bullet point away from the meat of it, they did say that it was a dirty one. Um, how do you deal with like when the OR report uses like contradictory statements or it's saying the one thing versus saying a thing later on? Right. So, again, this is pretty classic. Um, you know, there's a discrepancy. So this is where the, the the good infectious disease physician has to use one of his or her most helpful tools, which is the telephone. And you need to pick up that phone and you're going to call your surgeon friend. And, you know, I in this situation, I would say, you know, hey, Dr. So-and-so, your patient has some suspicious findings. Um, post-op day three, your operative note seems to indicate that everything went just smashingly. Um something, something fishy is going on here. Am I missing something? And a lot of times they'll say, oh yeah, Nick, you know, this belly was a mess. You know, there was inflammation, there was pus everywhere. 
well, why wasn't that in the note? Well, we can talk about that later. But, you know, that's where having that telephone conversation can illuminate things for you in a way that sometimes just reading the operative note, uh, you may miss something. True. Yeah, I can speak for experience. Like residency, never really read the OR report. I just looked at the diagnosis, <laughs> reason for infection. But now you have a special appreciation for it. Now yes. when I see a really good op note, it's like... <laughs> It's like reading a novel. You're like so excited. Like, oh, look, they commented on exactly what I wanted them to. So, It's always looking for that word. Yeah. All right. And then for this patient, would you have any recommendations for antibiotics? Definitely. So in this situation, we're, you know, we're dealing with an infection most likely. And since we're concerned with an intra-abdominal infection, which is most likely going to be polymicrobial, right? There's actually, there's a guideline for that. You got to go a little bit back in time to 2010. I think they're working on an update of it, but back in 2010, IDSA guideline, management of complicated intra-abdominal infections. This will help kind of guide your approach as far as your empiric coverage. So assuming this is a so-called community acquired infection, in other words, the patient has been relatively free of antibiotics for you know most of their existence, and they have not been a long-term hospital dweller. Um, then your regimen should be covering you know exactly what you would expect it to cover: the enteric, aerobic GNBs, things like E. coli. Um, obviously, anaerobic coverage is important, and even some enteric gram-positive strep coverage. Um, that would be a good well-crafted regimen. It could be monotherapy, you know, something like a beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitor. Uh, a lot of us use Piptazo uh, at our hospitals, or you could do a beta-lactam in combination with something like metronidazole. So this would be like your ceftriaxone plus metronidazole, or even a quinolone. If you have a, a complicated patient with a lot of, you know, medication allergies or intolerances, you could do something like ciprofloxacin or levofloxacin plus metronidazole, and that would be very reasonable. If, if, if this is a patient who has a lot of experience with antimicrobials, right? This is say, this is someone who has had multiple abdominal surgeries, multiple courses of antibiotics, lives in a nursing home, then I'm not dealing with a community acquired infection. And I have to think a little bit more about what we could be dealing with. So this is where prior culture data would be useful. If we can go back in the medical record and we can dig up some past cultures and Oh, would you look at that? This person had ESBLs, you know, back three months ago. Well, we got to make sure we're covering for that. Um, or you can also use your hospital antibiogram to sort of help guide you in these situations. What's your local uh, resistance to E. coli? Um, and, you know, if it's significant, then you might find yourself in a situation like this, pivoting to uh, a carbapenem as your first line coverage for an, an intra-abdominal infection if you're dealing with a lot of uh, suspected resistance. Empiric coverage of things like yeast or enterococcus, uh, generally not essential for these patients unless there is some reason to suspect one of these pathogens. So like thinking of yeast, if this person's had multiple, multiple abdominal surgeries, has been on TPN for a long time, is extremely sick in the ICU, I may empirically cover this patient um, for yeast versus someone who does not have those indicators. And would the antibiotic choice be different, let's say in the, you talk to the surgeon and they're like, actually there was 
concerns for perforation, we couldn't fully see it, versus they said no, no sign of perforation of the bowel. It really wouldn't change much. I guess, you know, if you think about where the perforation occurred, right? So if it's lower down, colon, you know, lower part of the small bowel, it's still primarily going to be enteric GNBs, anaerobes, and such. If it's higher up, if we're talking stomach, first part of the duodenum, a lot of times these are patients that have um, really bad peptic ulcer disease. There is some recommendation in those situations that you would want to uh, cover candida species and yeast and maybe a little bit more targeted gram-positive coverage in those patients. And I guess a side note question uh, for kind of surgeries, if the patient had uh, a perforated bowel, this is the first time they're open, would you want them to culture like a, a washout fluid? Or? You know, that is a good question. Um, in many of these situations, you really don't need to perform a culture um, because, again, you know what's going to be there. Now, I'm, again, I'm making some assumptions here. I'm assuming this is probably a community-acquired um, infection, and I'm expecting to find aerobic GNBs, anaerobes, etc. cetera. Um, so, no, you, you don't need to automatically do cultures. Not to mention, a lot of times, you're not going to have that cultured data until say day three or day four. And by that point, hopefully your patient's already improving. And so let's think of, a, of an example of a situation that you may encounter. You start the patient on Piptazo, the patient goes for either drainage or has a washout. And day three, the patient's doing much better on antibiotics. You're actually thinking about possibly discharging the patient. And then boom, a culture comes back and it shows E. coli, but it happens to be resistant to Piptazo what do you do, right? Should you change the patient's antibiotics because it's resistant to Piptazo? The guidelines will tell you actually you don't have to, right? If your patient is improving on the treatment that they're on, you can probably just continue the course um, rather than, you know, go chasing all these cultures. So, you know, that's a little nugget that I would offer for consideration. We're always, generally speaking, thinking of how to de-escalate the antibiotics in these patients. A lot of times in these intra-abdominal infections, you start the patient on something and, you know, that's probably what they're going to get for, you know, three or four or five days. And then if you have to transition them to something to leave the hospital, you know, you may have to do that. Um, going back to the case, you talked to the surgeon. Uh, they said that there was no signs of perforation, no sense of infection when they did their initial X-lap. They did get IR to drain the abscess and get a culture. Um, they did start the patient on Pepersentazobactam. The culture gram stain showed gram-negative bacilli, gram-pazococci, uh, but all that grew was pan-sensitive E. coli. Um, so the, I feel like a question I get a lot of times, do they still need a cover for anaerobes? Right. Well, let me, let me say it again, maybe just a slightly different way. Um, generally, de-escalation is a good idea, right? This is a one of the core principles of antimicrobial stewardship is we want to de-escalate the patient to the simplest regimen, but a low risk patient with a community acquired intra-abdominal infection, a lot of times you don't need to escalate or de-escalate these patients. They, they should already be on a fairly good empiric regimen covering the usual suspects, right? Whether you have culture results available or not. Um, so if they're already on a fairly simple regimen, and I would argue that something like Piptazo in this situation is pretty simple, um, you're probably good. 
And the duration of therapy for an intra-abdominal infection is not that long. Assuming you do good source control, you could get away with, you know, as few as five days or maybe as many as seven days. Um, but again, it's that, that, that notion of source control is where things get a little bit sticky because we don't always have the benefit of getting great source control. It's, it's difficult to completely drain an abscess to, to completion. There might still be some residual left behind. So oftentimes we find that these patients get a little bit of a longer course of antibiotics than we necessarily intended. In that situation, then yes, you can de-escalate. But the question you asked was, do we need anaerobic coverage because it's just growing aerobics? And I would say that, yes, you should continue the anaerobic coverage because it's most more than likely this is a polymicrobial infection. So, yeah, the team decided to do Ampsilvactum, and but they had another question. They wanted to know, would this count as a hospital-acquired infection, a surgical site infection against the numbers? So unfortunately, yeah, we're, we're going to get dinged on this one. Um, so let's think about how the NHSN, the National Healthcare Safety Network, defines a surgical site infection. So this is a more than likely a colon surgery. Um, and the infection is based on the level of where the infection occurred. So you've got superficial infections, which are skin and subcutaneous tissue. You have deep infections, which are involving deeper layers down to the level of the fascia. And then you've got organ space, which is then anything underneath that. And your qualifiers are that the date of the event needs to be within 30 days, which this case was. The location of the infection is defined based on the either the gross appearance of what's going on or based on the imaging. And then there's other qualifiers that help meet the definition, such as purulent drainage um, from a drain or a positive culture from a specimen, um, or if you detect an abscess on CT scan, I mean, all of those things could you know, help you meet the criteria. And lastly, depending on what type of surgery it was, and we said this was a colon surgery, um, there are also some clinical qualifiers, such as fever, hypotension, abdominal pain, that, that also help further qualify the SSI. So in this case, Getting back to it, you have a patient who's within 30 days of surgery who has a fever. Um, we're presuming that probably some portion of the bowel was resected because this was a colorectal fistula. Um, and the CAT scan showed that there was an abscess in the abdomen. So this is an organ space involvement. And with the presence of abscess on imaging, you have really everything that you need to meet the criteria. You don't even necessarily need a positive culture in this case, to meet the definition of an SSI. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, and this is one of those publicly reported metrics that hospitals get measured on and compared with one another. And um, this would be uh, an SSI. When talking to the surgeons and relating this information, they do have a question now because they have noticed that they're having an increase of SSIs. What can they do to help prevent this and how as ID physicians or other providers kind of educate on ways to make surgery a little bit more safe, infection-wise? Yep. So one thing that can be done um, that I think is germane to this case is making sure that surgeons are accurately documenting their findings when they go into the OR. Because if they would have said when they did the initial surgery that it was full of infection, 
that there was pus everywhere or whatever terminology they want to use, then this would not have counted as a surgical site infection because it would have been an infection present at the time of surgery or PATOS, P-A-T-O-S. So this would not have been, um, would not have been uh, um, harmed you, I guess, as a healthcare system from a reporting perspective. So making sure surgeons are documenting, that's, that's important thing number one. Um, when it comes to preventing surgical site infections, it's really all about bundles. Um, and a good SSI prevention bundle, and there's a lot of them out there, and it depends on what type of surgery you're doing, involves multiple interventions that are done in the preoperative period before the patient ever arrives to the hospital, intraoperatively, and even postoperatively. And so taking colon surgery, because that's, you know, kind of the, uh, the what we're talking about right now in this case, that means having the patient wash their skin with... Um, either a CHG or an antimicrobial soap in the days leading up to surgery, um, performing a mechanical bowel prep along with an oral antibiotic prior to surgery, using appropriate preoperative antibiotics beginning before the cut and continuing up to 24 hours after surgery, use of appropriate surgical antisepsis, washing the skin, preferably with a chlorhexidine alcohol-based antiseptic, uh, making sure that we're maintaining normal thermia or normal body temperature inside of the OR, and also making sure that we're maintaining good glucose control, good but not too tight uh, glucose control in the OR, limiting the traffic in the OR. We don't want a lot of people roaming in and out because that's been shown to increase risk of SSI. Um, and then again with colon surgeries, there are a few other little bit more nuanced things that can be done making sure that the surgeon is changing their gown and their gloves before they close, making sure that they're using a dedicated wound closing tray when they're closing up the abdomen. Those things have also been shown um, to improve or, or to decrease uh, the rates of surgical site infection. Beyond that, there are a few other things that can be done. For example, there's things that some surgeons like to do some some surgeons will swear that you know they they always wash these patients out with some, antibiotic solution at the time of surgery, I would argue that these things are not routinely recommended. The evidence is not as strong, um, but there are a lot of other things that can be done. And again, a lot of those things may depend on the type of surgery that's being performed. And how about uh, the decolonization patients who are like a positive MRSA nares? Is that recommended? Yeah, so MRSA uh, colonization is a huge problem, and MRSA screening and decolonization has been shown effective for reducing surgical site infections in very specific types of surgeries, talking about orthopedic surgeries with implants or hardware, so your total knees, your total hips, your spine surgeries with implants. Those patients benefit from, you know, uh, having an MRSA screening and decolonization. Another one is cardiac surgery, uh, valve replacement or cabbage surgery. Um, so this can be accomplished by having patients come in for a preoperative visit, usually with the surgeon. They swab the nose for staff. If it's positive, they typically will prescribe something to be done prior to surgery, like mupirocin given intranasally along with a chlorhexidine um, to help rid the skin and the, nas uh, the, the nares of any staff and that has been shown to decrease SSIs. What's happening is a lot of institutions are 
kind of pivoting to doing this for all patients, right? So we're no longer relying on patients to be screened and swabbed before. We're just saying, look, if you come into the hospital for a total joint, we're going to put, you know, mupirocin in your nose for five days, or we're going to swab your nose with povidone iodine. That's just going to become a part of our bundle. And that's been shown to be also another effective, cost-effective strategy for reducing SSIs. The surgeons on this case, they confirmed that there's a spike um, and they're asking for our help to look into why. I know you mentioned the different things they could do to limit it. What is a good way to start like a deep dive or to figure out why there's a up spike? So I would encourage any residents or fellows, residents interested in infectious disease, any ID fellows, if your hospital has a surgical site infection committee, this is a, a good practice for you to have because what they're probably doing is they're probably doing a root cause analysis when they have a surgical site infection. And this is where they look at the patient in great detail and they look at all the things that I just mentioned and they try to identify if there were any opportunities, right? First of all, was this really truly an infection, right? Was this a preventable event? You know, if this was a situation where a patient um, had colon surgery and, you know, and then something catastrophic happened and there was really nothing preventable, then you know, there may not be opportunities. But in general, there are probably going to be opportunities that will that you'll find. Was this an emergent case, for example? We know that those inherently carry greater risk of post-op infection. Were there portions of the bundle that were missed or were there other modifiable factors that were not performed? You may not find the smoking gun, right? It's very satisfying when you do. You're like, oh my gosh, this patient didn't get any pre-op antibiotics. Like, holy smokes, how did we miss this? But you may identify drift. And when you identify drift, away from best practices, that's an opportunity where you can go in and you can get the team to sort of refocus. So the patient had an anastomotic leak after surgery, which was probably idiopathic and may not have been preventable. But oh, by the way, we just happened to notice that the patient missed their CHG bath before surgery. And I think we could all agree that it's unlikely that that missed CHG bath led to the anastomotic leak but it still presents itself as an opportunity to make sure that we're doing best practices. So I feel like with all of these kind of hospital acquired infections, it seems like it's a very good team work type thing, working with either ICU team, surgeons, infection prevention team. Is that correct? Yeah, it is. And, and I got to tell you that infection prevention is, <laughs> it's, it's a hard job, right? It, it can be very difficult. Um, because we, you know, the ones who are, who are preaching this, we're not the ones that are performing the surgery, right? I'm not the one who's putting in the central line. I'm not the one who's putting in the urinary catheter. So I don't have that amount of control over the situation. But yes, we need a team. You need a good multidisciplinary team. And you, you really become a relationship builder, right? You become a consensus builder. And you, you develop trust and buy-in from your surgeons and from your critical care physicians. And, you know, you all are working together at this common goal, which is preventing infections and, you know, providing the best care possible for the patients. Thanks. Thank you. So kind of summarize um, everything we talked about. So you talked about making sure looking at the OR report, 
talk to the surgeon when able to try to get better clarification of what they actually saw versus what is written. Talk through everything that could be confused. Um, have some confusion around it. Always tailor antibiotics based off site of infection, what type of surgery, community versus hospital, and their history of prior antibiotics. And then, of course, looking at areas, either be like chlorhexidine baths, keeping the blood glucose lower um, as ways to make improvements. Great. Well, I uh, encourage everyone to to hopefully use these and hopefully share with people who come on your team to think about these questions that come up a lot for us in ID. Um, and I think getting getting down to the basics again and any episode that reinforces working and partnering with your teams in the hospital, I think is a huge part of our job and our life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so any, uh, any closing thoughts? Nothing for me. I, I really just appreciate the time and, and giving us an opportunity to talk about this stuff. I, I, uh, I think this is good stuff. And uh, I hope we can get the word out. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you both for joining. Thank you for having us. Thank you. All right. A big thank you to Jeremy and Nick for covering Clapsy, Cotties, and surgical site infections. In our last episode coming up next week, we'll discuss ventilator-associated pneumonia with another team from the University of Michigan. Don't forget to check out the website, febralpodcast.com, where you can find the consult notes, our ID infographics, and a link to the merch store. Please reach out if you have any suggestions for future shows or want to be more involved with Febral. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, and I'll see you next week.